All right, good evening. Everybody doing okay? Y'all ready to finish up Amos? Whoo, I feel like if we stay this hot and I get crunk up, y'all be in trouble. We're going to finish Amos tonight. Um, and I'm going to look at chapter 9. Uh, a couple things by way of announcement. I need, uh, I need some guys to, as soon as the service is over, to uh, go over to the youth building and help us uh, set up, the, bring in the round tables and set the chairs up for marriage night. So if you could do that as soon as the service is over, that'd be great. Uh, the other thing is, if you haven't signed up for marriage night and you want to come, there's some spots available, so you need to do that. Uh, go on the internet and go on our website and sign up, okay? And I think we had a, uh, at least, I think we had one couple that signed up and then uh, had a family emergency, won't be able to come. So if you or somebody you know is not coming because they don't have any money to sign up, then let me know and you can have that spot, okay? Or if that's the case, I'll figure it out and make a way for you to be there. So let's just make sure we're there. Now next week we're going to start a new series um, called Recalculating. And... We're going to just uh, take a break before we start another book series. And we're going to talk about some virtues that we need to recalculate because they oftentimes become vices. And so it'll be very practical and insightful. I actually was working on it for a Sunday morning series, but uh, the Lord just kept impressing on me that we need to do it in here. So that's what we'll do. So we'll start that next week. It'll be an abbreviated sermon next week because we have a family meeting. We're going to present the new uh, 2022 budget next uh, Wednesday night, but still have church. Okay? All right, let's pray, and then we'll look at Amos 9. Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for being a good and loving, sovereign God. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come tonight with confidence that you are willing to speak because, Lord, you are a speaking God evidenced by your word. And, Lord, so we know that your desire is to be heard. And so if we come into this time and our desire is to hear, then, Lord, we recognize the only thing that can prevent us from hearing is ourselves, our sin, our unwillingness to Obey that which we would hear from you. So we come to you tonight and we say, Lord, we, the answer is yes to whatever it is you'll say. Even if we don't know what it is, we will obey because it is you that speaks. And so, Lord, we, we have come to church tonight because we want to hear from you. So will you give us ears to hear. Prepare our hearts to receive that we might be courageous to glorify you in the obedience of your word. Thank you for this opportunity that you've given us in this time, this moment. By your providence, we receive it as a gift. In Jesus' name, amen. So this little often overlooked book of Amos, what a blessing it is. 
Um, you know, I just had a birthday, so at this stage of your life, it's like, you know, you ain't, you're not counting up, you're counting down, you know what I'm saying? So, so I always think about things, you know, you know how I am, I'm overthinking everything. So if the Lord gives me another decade of uh, preaching ministry, then uh, we should easily, or maybe not easily, but we should definitely be, uh, be able to uh, have preached through the entire Bible, all 66 books of the Bible. We just recently redid the, the uh, media library on the website, and uh, I really didn't realize how much content was on there until we hired two summer interns who spent the summer going through and categorizing. Uh, there's a, a thousand sermons on the, on the website. It's, it's pretty uh, amazing. And so I was thinking about, you know, how is a book like Amos overlooked? And then I realized, well, how is a person like Amos overlooked? I mean, he was overlooked in the ministry that God called him to. Amos was just this little ordinary farmer from Tekoa who, you know, grew up in Judah and God called to be a prophet to Israel. And so he was an outsider. He was unskilled. I mean, he had every conceivable thing against him. And yet God calls him. And it reminds us that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. But then it also reminds us that God defines extraordinary different than we do. Because he calls Amos to do something great, yet in the world's eyes, nobody would have seen that as great. I mean, Amos was called to prophesy to a people who wouldn't listen to him, who would ignore him, who would forsake him, who would mock him. Uh, it was a very difficult calling, yet it was extraordinary because it was from the Lord. And so this whole book and all of the things, I mean, it has just been a remarkable journey. As I think of the things that over the last two months that God's shown us, um, it has truly been remarkable. But this chapter has been especially rewarding to study. Um, you'll see there's a, I feel like I didn't scratch the surface. I could do a sermon series on just Amos chapter 9. And we could spend six weeks just in this uh, small chapter. But yet, uh, it's really been extraordinary. So if we were going to sum up the message of Amos, it would be, Turn to God before it's too late. That's really the overarching uh, message. Of course, that doesn't even begin to explain all of the nuances of what's going on. But it's the same message that precedes Jesus as John the Baptist is saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's always this urgent uh, call from Scripture to change while you can, because you don't know what tomorrow holds. And God loves people. And God understands the predicament that we as people, fallen people, are in. And so, therefore, He calls us to get our lives right and to turn to Him before it's too late. Now, let me 
back up and set some context. I've told you pieces of this before, but maybe you've never put it all together. So 180 years before Amos was on the scene, Jeroboam I, who is not the Jeroboam that's king during Amos' time, it's one of his descendants, but the first Jeroboam who split the kingdom, took ten tribes, went north, established Israel uh, after Solomon, okay? He was popular. People loved him because he, was, uh, he established this economic success that 180 years later is still being enjoyed by the people of Israel. So they loved their ruler. They loved their king because life was good under their leadership. They were at peace they had money, and so you can remember a few chapters back, we talked about how they were building fancy houses and doing all these things and enjoying life and getting fat and ignoring the poor and so on and so forth. All the reasons why God's frustrated with them. But nonetheless, so Jeroboam I establishes uh, Israel, and everyone loves him, yet he's insecure. He realizes that his position is... Uh, is something that's, that, that could, he could lose. And uh, it, one of the things that makes him most insecure is that every year the people in Israel, because they're Jews, these ten tribes, would go back to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, uh, for their yearly festival. And so he was afraid that they would go back to Jerusalem. They would sort of get rekindled with the nostalgia of the way home used to be or the splendor of the temple in Jerusalem or whatever the case may be, return, return to their roots, and then maybe they wouldn't want to be Israel anymore. Maybe they'd want to move to Judah. And so he didn't, he, that made him insecure and uncomfortable. So what did he do? He established a new place of worship, which, which we've talked about. He established uh, a new festival that took place on his new altar. He built new everything in Israel, in a, in a place called Bethel. And that infuriated God because he used religion to advance his political situation, and he took uh, liberty to do things he had absolutely no right to do. But one of the things that he did when he established this new feast so that people wouldn't have to go to Jerusalem anymore, is that he personally stood on the altar when the people came to sacrifice. Which is very, very odd. Because a king would never do that. Only a, a priest would be allowed to do that. And only a specific priest. But nonetheless, he did that because he wanted people to associate the, the, the worship of God in this feast with him. This is how perverted all of this is. You see in your handout, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 32, Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the ninth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did it at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. So that's what's going on. And so this has been going on for 180 years. And so now... Fast forward, otherwise verse 1 of chapter 9 wouldn't make any sense to you. Look at verse 1. I saw the Lord standing by the altar. You see, now, if, if I hadn't told you all that, 
why is God standing by the altar? What is this vision about? That's odd that God would be standing by the altar. But what you see is God is specifically doing things pertaining to the things that he's upset about. And so this picture of Almighty God, L-O-R-D, Yahweh God, the sovereign God of the universe standing on the altar, we see as the counterfeit is being replaced by the genuine. See, now the Lord is where Jeroboam was standing. He's writing what was wrong. The human replaced by the divine. And this king who propped up his dynasty, see, he was the one holding up his dynasty, is replaced by the king who would throw it down. So now the capital K king has shown up, and he's not happy. And so, as you well know, if you've been with us over these months, the day of pretense was over, and the war on pretense had begun because God's issue with the people of Israel is not that they weren't religious. It's not that they weren't. I mean, it's, it's crazy because in my brain, it's very hard sometimes to keep Amos and 1 Corinthians separated because every Wednesday, I want to say, the people of Israel were misdirected. They were religiously active. They were bringing their sacrifices to the temple. They were engaging in all the festivals. The only problem was they were doing it for the wrong reason. They were going to the wrong temple. They had everything was wrong, but they were going through all. They were very diligent to continue to do all the religious things that they used to do. And it's pretense. And God hates pretense. And so he won't even acknowledge their singing. He said he plugs his ears when they sing. Look at, look at the rest of verse 1 and, and on. Strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away. He who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Mount Carmel, for there I will search and I will take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. That's a hilarious verse. Verse 4, but they go into captivity before their enemies, for there I will command the sword, and it shall slay them, and I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. So you see a reversal of the promise in Jeremiah 29, 11. Verse 4, the Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell there mourn, all of it shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. He who builds his layers in the sky, and has founded his strata in the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. So God is clearly 
upset. And now this judgment that has been, has been uh, warned over and over and prophesied and predicted is now about to come to pass. And here's what we see. It doesn't matter what you do. It's happening. It's, it's a foregone conclusion. The time has passed for, you know, opportunity. Now, as this comes to an end, God's dealing with this pretense. So let's make sure we understand pretense. The throwing of a cloak of religion over a life motivated towards self. You see, again, what Amos really has taught in the in-between the lines, like if you went back and you listened through these nine messages, there'd be some themes that you would hear continually throughout this book. And one of those messages is, is that it's not what we do, but it's why we do it. God cares deeply. Maybe God cares primarily, would be the way to say it, about motive. And so... They're doing religiously right things, but it's for self-gain. Listen, it's, it's like the person who comes to church today, and they come to church because they don't want God to get them. They don't want uh, to lose their, their blessing. Like maybe, maybe you have a great job, and, or your, your business is making a lot of money, and so you... You come to church because you're afraid if you don't come to church, you're going you're gonna to lose your job or your business is going to stop making money. That's pretense. I would say to that person, stay home. You're wasting your time. I mean, what a, a foolish game to play. God is not interested in that. It's mocking God. But a lot of people do religious things. I mean, maybe you're here tonight and you tithe because you are afraid of what would happen to you if you don't. And the Bible clearly says, listen, if you don't give with a joyful heart, then God will reject it anyway. So you're wasting your time. If you're reluctantly Giving to God, if every time you give to the Lord's work, you think about all the things you could have done with that money, keep it in your pocket. It doesn't work like that. You're not accomplishing anything. You're heaping condemnation on your head. Motive matters to God. And listen, here's the thing. It matters to me and you. Listen, if you love anyone in your life that you love, you know what you care about? Motive. That's what you care about. Motive. Man, we can get over, we can get over a lot of things. Hurtful things. But motive is big. Is big. And if somebody does something and their you know, full motive and intention is to harm you or to hurt you, that compounds the wound, you know, unbelievably. And so what they were doing was, 
They're trying to use God and religion as tools whereby, now listen, self can be secured and at the same time, life can be made secure for self. You see, they had a lot of things, just like we do, they had a lot of things that they wanted to hang on to, just like we do. And let's be honest. One of the reasons why so-called Christian people get all fanatical about things is because they're afraid they're going to lose things that they want to hold on to. Most of the political zeal in Christianity is motivated by economics. I didn't say all, most. Because at the end of the day, what most people care about is their 401k. They're, listen, no, no one, it, it's interesting. No one is boycotting or picketing or throwing a fit of any kind because of the uh, oppression of the poor or the mistreatment of children. No. You seen anything about that? No. You know why? Because we don't care. What we care about is economics. What we care about is what's going to make us comfortable. You could take about 85 to 95% of all the Christian political zeal and lump it up into taxes. That's, that's all we care about. We don't, we don't want to pay taxes. Now, forget about the children. Forget about the poor. We don't want to pay taxes. Huh? I mean, why are you looking at me like this? You know it's true. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Trying to bend God and religion in such a way as it will secure self. Now, does that mean that, you know, we shouldn't care about taxes? That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, what are you most in an uproar about? See, uh, let me bring you into reality for a second here. We got a family in the church recently took in a foster child and uh, grew up right here in Gulfport. And this little girl, about yay tall, when they brought her to the house, the CPS workers told the family um, that they needed to make sure that they didn't have any liquid soap anywhere where the child could get to it. In the bathrooms, anywhere where the child would be. You know, this isn't a toddler. This is a, you know, 
a second grader. And the reason is because her and her little brother had been starved to such a degree that the child resorted to eating soap to stay alive. Her little brother was eating the hair out of hairbrushes. In Gulfport. You seen that on the news? Nah. We get a 10-minute report on uh, the update on how the street uh, resurfacing is going so that we can drive on smooth roads. We get updates on, you know, what's going on uh, with the weather so none of our castles get uh, bumped up or banged up. We get a, we get, but ain't nobody talking about that because nobody cares. Where's, where's all the, you see what I'm saying? It's, it's just pretense. It's pretense. That doesn't mean that everybody's got to do everything, but it just means that everybody who loves Jesus ought to be doing something. That's what I say. So upon whom will the wrath fall? I mean, I could just sit here all night and we could just talk about, you know, I mean, elderly people who have, who are, have needs, man. They don't have anybody to help them. And on and on it goes. Verse 7. So who's it going to fall on? Verse 7. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, God says, O children of Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Capthor, and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it. From the face of the earth, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. Now, a lot of people will say that Amos chapter 9 is one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible to interpret. And it is difficult. I don't think it's one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible, but it is difficult. And there's so there's... There's a history of misuse of these passages. And in 7 and 8, this is where you may hear at some point in the future or at some point in the past, if you're, you know, listening to or watching something or reading something you shouldn't be, somebody trying to tell you that these verses are an indication of God, uh, God's removal of the Abrahamic covenant to Israel. Which is absurd. That's not what this is. But anyway... These are passages where people say all kinds of crazy stuff because the Lord says of Ethiopia, you're the same as the people of Ethiopia to me. So this is a turning point, they'll say, in, in, uh, you know, in biblical history to a, a place where God now opens everything up and sees everybody the same or removes his uh, chosen status from Israel or whatever. Nonsense. That's not at all what this is. So... This is what God is simply uh, declaring. He's saying, first of all, 
those who are living in a spiritual dream world, the ones that are going to face this destruction that you can't hide from, you can't go under the sea, you can't go to hell, you can't go to heaven, you can't go anywhere, no matter what you do, God is going to find you. These are the people that are in a spiritual dream world believing that God is eternally in their debt because of lineage regardless of their character. You see, there is a whole host of people in Israel who believe that God is on their side because they're Jews and just because of that. And so it is completely irrelevant how they behave, how they act, how they worship, what they do. None of that matters. God gives them a pass because, they're, because of their lineage. So God is simply saying something that has always been true. This isn't new information. This is the consistent character and nature of God. The Lord does not look on people in light of their historical past, but in light of their moral present. Always. Now, let's understand how this, because this could get a little confusing, so we need to make sure we have clarity. So this is not God saying that you do not possess the special relationship with me that you once enjoyed. That's not what God's saying to Israel. This is not about privileges being removed. That's not even what this is about. This isn't a negative. This is a positive. Okay? It's a positive. He's saying... To the people of Israel, you stand where you've always stood alongside every other kingdom, alongside every other people, group, or nation, subject to the moral inquiry and standards of a holy God. It doesn't matter who you are or where you live or what your lineage is or where you can't. You, nobody is outside of the righteousness of God. Every single image bearer, whether you are a Jew that lives in Israel or a Muslim who lives in Iran and wants to kill the Jew that lives in Israel, they're both equally under the authority of a sovereign God. And His righteousness is not, uh, is, there's not versions of it for one people and another version for another people. That's not how that works. So He's just declaring what's always been true. We just sort of get in this mindset sometimes because we, we say things like, well, you know, Israel is God's chosen people, which they are. And I talk about that all the time. And we should pay attention to what goes on in Israel because God does, uh, you know, is doing a significant work through Israel that will lead us to interpret what's going on in world events. Yes, all of that is 100% true. But at the same time, this is, this is where you have to you, you have, to have uh, clarity and you have to think right. Because something is true does not mean it's the only thing that's true. Now, I'm going to explain it to you. This is what I want you to understand. 
Don't confuse national destiny with personal responsibility. And if there's two places in the world today where that's going to happen, it is going to be in Israel and the United States of America. Because they're the most prone nations to miss this reality. Now, I don't really know why that's true of us, because that's absurd. It makes perfect sense why people who live in Israel would feel that way. But for some reason, we believe that because we're Americans, that somehow God specially smiles upon us. Now, why do we believe that? Let's just, let's just think about this for a second. We believe that because we are a blessed people. And so we have equated the blessings that we have with the favor of God. Because we have freedom, we have, we're the most economically successful nation in the history of the world. We have the highest standard of living that any country has ever had in the history of civilization. And on and on it goes. So God must be happy with us. And I say to you, have you read Amos? We just make that leap. You think because we have dollars that say in God we trust, somehow that's going to prevent God from, well, you see what I mean? Like, let's just think about it. Is that what we really think? Is it? Somehow, because we, so, so here's my question. Some Muslim radical in Iraq has a greater personal responsibility to God than you do sitting in this room right now tonight? Of course not. It is 100% equal. You got that? Like, think about that for a second. Man, we have been brainwashed. There is no difference. If you are not in Christ right now, you eternal, etern your eternity is the exact same as a Muslim fanatic. No difference. And it doesn't matter. The same thing's true if you live in Israel. Though you may live amongst the people in a land that God, that we know that God has a national plan for, that doesn't excuse individual responsibility within that nation. You see that? Man, that's helpful. That'll help you. You can straighten some things out with that. So, here's what he says. End of verse 8. Yet, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. Now, now notice what he says. He says... Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom. Now, he's talking straight to Israel. That's what he's talking to. And I will destroy it from the face of the earth. But I won't utterly destroy the house of Jacob. So Israel is going to get wiped off the face of the earth, but 
the house of Jacob will remain. Do you know what that means? That means that every person that God is talking to is going to get their just due according to their personal liability before a holy God. But it also means something else. It must mean that there must be some faithful within Israel. Because if there weren't, God would be acting unjustly. See, is God going to give anyone a pass? No one's getting a pass. Do you understand this? No one is getting a pass. And this is what this text is illustrating. This is so theologically formative right here to understand this. So I will not destroy the house of Jacob, verse 9, for surely I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among the nations as grain is sifted in a sieve. Yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. Now that right there, I'm telling you, the key is that little section right there. The end of 8, verse 9 and verse 10, right there. I don't know of too many places where you can see as clearly right there what God is trying to communicate. And this is a message that I would say most people are oblivious to this reality. So he says he's going to sift it with a sieve. A sieve. Now, I am not the world's most proficient person in the kitchen, as you well know. So I'm thinking, are we talking about a colander here? What are we talking about? What is a sieve? So I had to look this thing up. It's that thing like when you, the only thing I can, you know, that wire cup deal where you like pour the coffee through and the grounds get stuck in it, right? That thing, sieve. You got that? That's what it is. I'm thinking the bowl that you dump the spaghetti in and the water goes out the bottom, but that's not what we're talking about. It's, it's finer than that, I'm assuming, right? I've never held one in my hand. I've never used one, but I have seen one. And so now I know what a sieve is. So what is the sieve? It's just like the other things that God has been speaking to us in the book of Amos. Just like the plumb line, it's an instrument of discrimination. And here's the thing. When, when, if I said to you something was an instrument of discrimination... That sounds unbelievably offensive and negative today, isn't it? Because of the way that the word discrimination sets on top of us. But there's nothing wrong with the word discrimination. The problem is the use and the abuse in discrimination. But all it is is a mechanism by which God is saying, I'm going to uh, I'm going to rid something of its impurities. I'm going to discriminate between that which is good and that which is bad. So that's what the sieve is doing. And here's the thing. 
You wouldn't, I just want you to think about this. You wouldn't use a sieve. The only reason you would use a sieve is if you knew that whatever it is you were putting in the sieve had something worth keeping, right? If everything in the cup was junk, you wouldn't pour it in a sieve, would you? Well, that would be insane. So what's embedded in this meaning is there must be something worth saving, right? Yes. And so that, that back to this issue of personal responsibility. Think about the conversation that God has with Abraham about Lot over Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, how many righteous are there? Are there this many? Are there that many? Are there? Or when God... Uh, Destroys the earth, floods the earth in Noah's time. And he makes a big deal about saying, well, that not that the, the, the men, the earth was covered with men filled and bent on evilness, except for there's a sieve. There wouldn't be a sieve unless there was something good to, to keep. So this distinction between those that pass and those that fail is not sin. You got that? Now, I'm sure that's not what you were expecting me to say. But it's not. It's not. So come on. Just a few more minutes. I need you to think with me because you can really, God can shape you tonight, okay? It's not sin. So what is this distinction? This distinction is about those who are not troubled by their sin. It's very clear in the text. God tells us who he's frustrated with. In verse 10, he says, All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, The calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. See, what's what's the distinction, see, is there are complacent, careless sinners living in a world of pretense and make-believe. So the cup that God's going to pour into the sieve, understand, represents the nation of Israel. Every person in the cup is a sinner. Every person. So all when the cup pours into the sieve, it's all sinners. So we're not separating the sinful from the non-sinful. No, no. That's not what we're doing. God's been talking about this for several chapters now in Amos, leading us up to this point. This isn't new information. I've talked to you about it twice in the last month. He is sifting out a remnant. And a remnant is a company of sinners Bearing the mark of moral and spiritual concern.
lot of times when we start talking about a remnant, we like that because we feel like we are part of the remnant. Well, shouldn't we know what a remnant is before we start automatically assuming that we're a part of something? So what is a remnant? It's a company of sinners. So here's what that means. That every person in this room has the potential to be in the remnant. Because we all meet that requirement. Amen? The question is, is our life marked by moral and spiritual concern? Or is it marked by pretense? You see, do we just get up every day and think that we're going to be okay? Because we think we're going to be okay. We think we're going to be okay because the world is filled with people that are worse than I am. So therefore, I'm going to be okay. See, somehow I am, uh, I feel secure in the fact that so many people are worse than me. But in God's eyes, that is an irrelevant distinction right there. It's irrelevant. It is absolutely irrelevant. Some of the most upstanding and revered people in our culture, even by a Christian standard, are going to blow hell wide open. That's not God's standard. God's standard is, does your sin break you? Does your sin cause you to weep? Does your sin break your heart and hurt you? Do you grieve over the fact that you, you fail such a good and awesome loving God? I know that I got to be careful right here because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to take advantage of you emotionally. And God doesn't want to do that. And it could happen if we're not careful. And I could give certain illustrations about things that I feel like could could cause you harm because I could I could describe certain things that we all experience together and and certain people don't participate in certain things because they're afraid of what other people will think about them that's pretense but the danger is is that if I if I lay that out specifically then other people will then start to participate in those things because I said that, and it's pretense. You follow me? So it's a very delicate situation because at the end of the day,
pretense is by the design of God, it's self-policed. You understand what I just said? You. There is no such thing as accountability that can protect you or prevent pretense in your life. That doesn't exist. Because it's invisible. You understand? That's why it's so it's such a dangerous conversation. Because you got people in this room that have grown up on this side and people who've grown up on this side and both ways it, man it can just send you off into pretense. You grew up in pretense. Some people grew up in a pretense where I'm not, I I am okay because I don't do these things. And other people grew up, I'm okay because I do do these things. And here's the thing, that doesn't matter. What matters? Motive. Why are you doing it? You see? You understand? So this is the thing. It's self-policing. So come Sunday morning, I'm done preaching. Now the, now the ball's in your court. So it's you now have to deal with what you've heard from God, and you have to figure out what that means and how you're going to do it. And so in that moment, there's an opportunity for you to come up to the altar and kneel at the altar. Right? Now, some people do and some people don't. Now, some people don't because you, you're afraid. You care more about what other people think than God. So you stay right there. And the Spirit of God's telling you, you need to, you need to, you need to kneel down and humble yourself before me. But you don't do that because you're pretense. But then you got other people that come barreling down here like a, like a rocket ship because they want to seem spiritual, and it's pretense. And so nobody can look at you and say, well, it's pretense because you do or it's pretense because you don't because we don't know. But you do. You know. Your spouse doesn't know. Your kids don't know. You know. That's what's so tricky about it. And here's the deal. We're all in the cup and we're all getting poured into the sieve. And what is the sieve? What's the sieve? Jesus is the sieve. He's the plumb line and he's the sieve. And you and I will get poured into that sieve. And that's how that's going down. And what's right and what's wrong is going to be separated by that sieve. See, listen, God's talking to Israel. Understand this, okay? They will forever be sinners. Do you understand that? Everyone God's talking to will forever be sinners, just like everyone I'm talking to and just like who you're listening to. There's never going to become, there will never be a moment in this life where any of us are not sinners. So you got to understand how you, how this works, how we fit into this thing. 
But God is talking about a remnant, and it's not because they're not sinners, but it's because they're sinners longing to fight a war against their sin. The remnant wars against their sin. Pre, listen, I, I mean, ooh. you got to understand. If you can't, it's so dangerous to say this. If you can't recall the last time that you just, you were so sick because of your sin that you just want to puke. You want to cry. You want to scream. You want to shout. Like you cannot believe that you failed God again. Not because you got caught. Not because there's consequences. Just because you did. But if you're just namby-pamby wandering along like you got some, sorry, K-love life. You are doomed. Do you hear me? Doomed. I'm just telling you, how can you possibly be a sinner like me and just be okay? I'm not okay. If you, and you're not okay, and if you don't know you're not okay, you are really not okay. I mean, I, I, that has got to be the most loving thing I can say to you right now. We've done ourselves such a disservice by just, Saying, hey, I'm good, man. I prayed a prayer. I got dunked in water. I filled out a card. I did this and I did that. And that is going to make no difference at all. None. If you are not broken. You ain't going through that sieve. And the problem is, is that. If you're in here tonight and your life is ruled by pretense, you have already, your mind automatically goes to, what can you do to appear to be what I just said? And it will never work. It will never work. Never. My wife can't tell you what I just said about me because she can't see it. If she could see it, it would be pretense. Didn't Jesus say the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing? Isn't that what he said? It's pretense. Look at verse 11. Or no, let's, let's, here's the distinguishing marks, okay? The distinguishing marks of a remnant person. Obedience and repentance. 
see, I can see obedience. I can't really see repentance. Maybe sometimes I can. But here's the thing. Obedience and repentance should never be discounted because they're the marks of a remnant person. But at the end of the day, I don't know your motive. Like you might be doing a lot of things. Like I said, man, that person is obedient, but I don't know why you're doing it. Right? You might, I mean, I mean, people come to me all the time and they're just wailing and sorry and, you know, just, uh, but I don't know if it's genuine repentance or not. I have a, I have a little sort of, you know, makeshift, uh, you know, Gilligan's Island sieve that I kind of, in my own, uh, you know, intelligence came up with myself that I can pour it through and try to figure it out. But it, it's, it has no eternal bearing. I like to think God gave it to me, but I, you know, I don't know. I don't have his sieve. Man, if I did. Verse 11. On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David. Over that word tabernacle, write booth, because that's the exact word, booth. Which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. All right, so the booth of David, this tabernacle of David. So what this is, is what is, the, what is the booth of David? This is referring to the feast of booths, right, where the Israelites would go back and reenact the, the Exodus pilgrimage, right? They would reenact pilgrimage, and they would all go back to Jerusalem and they would go there and they would build these makeshift booths and they would sleep outside and the booths had sides but didn't have a top so that they could look up into the stars and remember how God led them through the so that's the whole thing it's a it's a reenactment and a reminder of us being called on pilgrimage that's this whole thing right now remember I read that verse in the beginning out of 1 Kings 12 verse 32 and Jeroboam standing on the altar and it says, because see, we know the exact date of, that Jeroboam put on the calendar every year for his feast. And it says that it was there to counteract the feast in Jerusalem. And what do you think the feast was? The Feast of Booths. What Jeroboam did was he made a new feast to supplant God's Feast of Booths. And so God says, oh, on that day, I'm going to raise up the booth of David. You think you can come up with your own replacement? Oh, negatory. That's not how that's going to work. You see, there he was. What, what was Jeroboam doing? He was standing on the altar. So that puts him in the position of mediator between God and man. That's what that is, right? So now God says, I'm going to raise up the booth of David, which has fallen down. I'm going to repair its damages, raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. And so what he's saying is, is that you made this new thing 
And you, you tried to put yourself between me and my people, but no, I'm going to raise up the booth of David, signifying I'm going I'm to be bringing the perfect royal mediator onto the scene. I'm going to bring the real high priest. I'm going to bring the one who is going to act as an in-between between my, me and my people. I am going to create a kingdom led by a king who will be everything that you ever wished for and more. He will be prophet, priest, and king. And I'm going to provide my people with a place of refuge and refreshment like they can't believe. See, the remnant has a reward, and here's what it is. The reward is this king whose intercession between God and his people is fully acceptable to the Lord and whose kingdom will bring safety and refreshment to his people forever and ever. You see, this, this intercessor that, that, that God is going to rebuild the, the booth of David with, he's going to send the Messiah. And so now, now when we go into the throne room of heaven, Seated at the right hand of God is Jesus who intercedes on our behalf continuously, perfectly, always. See, we don't, we don't need a high priest because we have the high priest. There is no replacement. There is no substitute. Everything before Jesus was all just a counterfeit, just pointing. It was just a shadow. And notice what he says. He says... He's going to repair it. And then he says that they may possess the remnant. He uses the word remnant now of Edom. Is that ringing a bell to anybody? Edomites, the hated people of the people of God. The thorn in the side of the people of God, Edom. Remember in Numbers chapter 20 is where, I mean, it's been a problem from the beginning. As Moses is leading the children of Israel, they get to Edom and they get stopped. And they ask Edom, they say, listen, just let us pass through. Because if you don't let us pass through, we're going to walk weeks to go around. We're going to pass through. And Moses says, we're not going to eat any of your food. We won't even drink from your wells. We won't look to the left or the right. We're not even going to leave the king's highway. In Numbers chapter 20, read it. I think verse 32. If you just walk, we're going to walk just straight as an arrow through with our heads down. Won't say anything to anybody, bother anybody. And the king of Edom said, no, go around. And they were a thorn in Israel's side ever since. And every time you see the word Edom in the Bible, just automatically think oppression. It's a symbol of oppression. So now God says, remember, you know, national destiny. God flips the tables. So not only is he going to pour Israel through a sieve, but there's a remnant in Edom. That's a shocking statement. Shocking statement. And it symbolizes not only the sovereignty of God over all peoples and the possibility and opportunity in God of all peoples. 
It doesn't matter where you are or where you, what you grew up in or where you listen. The arm of God to save is not shortened. It's not hindered. It's not. And so, you know, may, maybe you grew up in the Bible Belt or maybe you grew up in an atheist family like me or maybe you grew up in a Muslim country or whatever. God can save to the uttermost. He's not hindered by that. And he's simply declaring, I got a remnant in Edom. And then he says, in the Gentiles, call by my name. Call by my name. It's all inclusive language. See, these sound like really hard verses of exclusion, but what they really are are inclusive. They're just discriminating. But once it, once it passes through the sieve, that which passes the test, it is amazingly inclusive. You see this coming king. Look, here's the mystery. It's the same thing, the mystery in Ephesians chapter 3. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. You see that? That's the mystery, mind-blowing. Members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. You see that? Yeah. There's no. Nobody gets a, a pass based on nationality. Everybody goes through the sieve. So this coming king that's going to rebuild the booth of David, we'll see he's not just the better David, the second David, but he's also the second Adam. See, not only is he going to rebuild the booth of David, but he's going to, and, and therefore the kingdom of David, the dynasty and the lineage of David. That's why Jesus comes in the lineage of David. But not only that, he's going to rebuild the earth that the kingdom is contained within. See, what he's about to declare is that the curse has gone and now Eden is restored. This is the, the gift to the remnant. Verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Man, that is good. So here's what we see. We see that, that when God accomplishes his sifting work, what, what awaits God's remnant people, which all of this discussion is just an Old Testament way of what we would say in a new covenant atmosphere like this, saved people. This is what saved people. That's what the remnant is. Saved people. Jesus is the sieve. So what am I saying? Here's what I'm saying. 
I'm saying if everything that I said about the remnant or if anything I said about the remnant makes you uncomfortable, then you should be uncomfortable about your salvation. In other words, that's why the Bible says wrestle out your salvation. If your sin is not devastatingly wounding you, something is wrong. And what would be a humongous mistake on your part is just to ignore the possibility that you may not be what you think you are. You see, it is inconceivable to say on this hand, this great and awesome God who shed His blood to bestow His grace upon me that I owe everything to, that I am eternally grateful to, that every day I cannot even believe how good He is for all that He's done for me, and then turn around in the same breath and say, but when I drive a spear of sin into His back, it doesn't bother me. That, my friend, is impossible. Any more so than you could drive a, a spear into the back of your children or your spouse or someone you love. You would never harm them. You'd do anything to help them. And yet, look at what you do to Christ. Now, all the legalists in the room better unravel because you're about to get wound in the wrong direction. The issue is not that you fail. That's the mistake of the legalist. You are stuck on step one, and step one ain't the issue. What you fail to realize is that every person in this room and every person who's ever breathed earth, air, fails step one. The problem is not that you failed. The problem is, what do you do when you fail? That's the issue. The legalist is hung up like, I failed, I failed, I failed. Well, welcome to the club. Just call me. I'm the president of the club. This is Tony, president of the Failure Club. Thanks for calling. Press 1 for the failures in the last 10 minutes, two for the failures in the last 20 minutes, three for the, I mean, what do you want to hear? Failure is not the issue. What do you do when you fail? That's the issue. I want to show you something, then we'll be done. Uh, verse 14. I'm going to bring the captives back, my people Israel. They'll build, they will build the waste cities and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and drink from them. They will uh, plant gardens and eat fruit from them. Right to the side of verse 14, right 5, 11. Chapter 5, verse 11. Back in chapter 5, it says of Israel... They will, that God is saying, you're going to plant, you're going to build houses and never live in them. Remember that? You're going to plant vineyards, but you're never going to enjoy the fruit of them. Remember that in chapter 5, verse 11? 
But look at what happens to the remnant. Now the table is inverted. And that's really the key I want you to see. Because as we look towards this eternity that awaits us as God's people, God's children, team failure. But we war. We war against sin. We war against it. It's so crazy that this is true, and yet, shouldn't it be, shouldn't it be that when somebody goes to a brother and sister in Christ and says, hey, I'm concerned about this. I'm concerned about this sin. I'm concerned about what's going on. I'm concerned about your life. I'm concerned about what I see. If we believe this, wouldn't we embrace them and say, thank God for you. Thank you for saying that to me. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out to me. Thank you for... But we get mad. We don't like it. We get offended by it. I'm just going to go find a new church. That's not remnant. That's not remnant. Not if we believe this. Not if we understood that, listen... These people are building these houses that they won't live in. They're planting these vineyards that they won't harvest from. That they're doing. They're, why are they doing all this? They're, doing, they're not doing these things to just waste their time. They're doing these things. Why? Because they have hopes and dreams. They're doing these things because they have ambitions. They're doing these things because they have desires. They're doing these things because they see the, that there's a possible way that things could, could work or be better or whatever. So they're doing these things out of a... And out of an ambition. And that ambition has been perverted into something ungodly, which is just to suit themselves or just to secure themselves. But, but at the core, that ambition is what God put inside of us. That God would say, Listen to me. That God would say, God wrote eternity on my heart and your heart. And so, when things are made right, God's remnant people would want to build big houses so they could take in orphans. They'd want to build vineyards and gardens so they could feed hungry people. The ambitions would be the same, but they'd be redeemed. 
You see, just when, when, you, when you saved people don't lose their imagination, they don't lose their ambition, they don't lose their desire, they have it redeemed. And so we can dream things and we can push for things and we can pray for things and we can believe in things and we can pursue things along this pilgrimage together for good. And we can say these things that God gives us access to, these gifts that God's placed within me, how can I leverage these things for the good of those around me? You should never feel guilty for this thing inside of you that wants to press for more. You should let it be redeemed for the purpose that God gave it to you. That's why it's there. Don't you see in a perfect world, God's saying, when I make everything perfect, you're going to want to build houses and you're going to build them and you're going to live in them and you're going to plant gardens and you're going to eat from them and you're going to have vineyards and you're going to drink from them. That's not going to go away. That's going to be what it's supposed to be. But it's not supposed to be for me and you to make ourselves secure and fat and comfortable. It's supposed to make the world a better place and bring glory to our Father in heaven. See, Amos sees, he sees the day of great reversal where people have a plan and they can achieve. You see, right now, we can't achieve our plan, ultimately. Because somehow, we can't get sin out of the equation. There's always leaven in it somewhere. But that's not how God intended for it to be. That's not how it was in Eden before sin. No. So what we can do is we need to be about trying to, trying to make things, to turning our heart towards how can I leverage this? How can I make this a little this little plot? How can I make this family that I have that lives on this piece of ground? How can I try to make this as Eden-like as possible? How can I use it to show somebody else That it's okay to have a dream. If, if believers aren't showing the world that it's okay to dream, then who is? Hollywood? Come on. Brothers and sisters, dream. Dream about some great thing that God might use you to do. Dream about it. Dream about some way that God will just empower you and use you or give you favor. Dream about that. Dream about it. The frustration of our, our hopes and dreams... One day is going to be banished forever. See, my hopes and dreams are like yours. They're frustrated. They're always frustrated. Because the things that, the things that God 
allows me to do and the things that God allows you to do. And the, the greatest victories that we have are still tainted by sin. They're frustrated. But we keep dreaming and we keep, we keep achieving and we keep pushing. Don't you see? It's like it's, it's the fire that burns in my heart all the time. So you wake up every day and go, what might today hold? What could God do today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your promise to the remnant, Lord. Thank you for the sieve of Jesus. Thank you for all the things that you've taught us in the book of Amos. Lord, let us leave here tonight. If there's anything that we take away, let us leave here tonight recognizing that our motives matter to you. That maybe the most important thing about us is completely invisible to everyone that knows us. Why? Why are we obedient in the things we're obedient to? How do we respond when we fail you? Thank you. You love us so much as evidenced by your word and what you say to us. And so we do receive this word as a gift from our dad who loves us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love you. Men, I need you to go to uh, the youth building and help move tables if you would.